0: Megan and I are so excited to share this behind-the-scenes peek into the making of our Women Who Travel power list. But there's so much more waiting for you in the full article. From film directors to war journalists to wildlife ecologists, these women are reshaping the travel landscape and leaving a lasting impact on the world. Keep listening to hear more about why Megan and myself chose to highlight these 15 fascinating women. And head over to cntraveler.com today to explore the complete list and be inspired by their incredible journeys. And for a limited time, our listeners can unlock everything Traveller has to offer for just $5. Simply use code POD5, that's P-O-D-5, at checkout to access exclusive travel insights, breathtaking destinations, and invaluable tips to fuel your adventurous spirit. All for just $5. And remember, every adventure starts with just one step. Join us in celebrating the power of women in travel. Visit cntraveler.com today.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
2: A lot
3: of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi,
0: I'm Lale Arikoglu, and welcome to a new year of Women Who Travel. We're continuing to cover stories of adventures, expeditions, and endurance. We'll be speaking to more pioneering and curious women and sharing responsive tales from listeners with their own travel experiences that makes us feel like we're on the trip with them. Today, I'm talking to someone whose daily commute this time of year is rounding up her dogs and heading out into snowdrifts. She's Blair Braverman, adventurer and author.
3: So I am a long-distance dog sledder. And what that means is that I go out with my dogs and go on long trips with them. I take teams of dogs out into the wilderness and We might go 20 miles, or we might go 200 miles, or sometimes we go a lot farther than that, 400 or 1,000 miles at a time.
0: Every year, tour operators take visitors to Alaska to see the northern lights. And some of them might catch the Iditarod race, which takes place over 1,000 miles. It's the longest dog sled race in the world, and it goes from Anchorage to Nome on the Bering Sea. (laughs)
3: I've raced the Iditarod one time, and then the year after that, my husband raced it. Okay. We have one team, so we don't typically race at the same time. We alternate.
0: It's a race that goes over several days and crosses a huge amount of mileage.
3: The races that I do are typically unassisted, so we don't have a pit crew. There's nobody setting up camp for us at the end of the day. It's just me and the dogs getting through every challenge together and and nobody's coming to help us. I do carry an emergency beacon on my sled and I can press a button in an emergency. It would probably take two to three days for someone to reach me if I press that button. So in no way do I expect outside help. I'm a city girl myself,
0: but often to the surprise of my friends, I spent quite a lot of time on a farm growing up. Talking to Blair has me remembering spending lots of time with my grandparents on their farm in Wales. My grandfather trained sheepdogs. Some of my favourites were Pat and Bonnie, who used to knock around the farmhouse. There was another dog called Max, who I was obsessed with when I was age eight. Like Blair, I became accustomed to the chaos and joy that comes with spending many, many days in the company of 10 or 15 hyperactive pups. When I was a kid, my grandfather used to take me along into the fields as he was rounding up sheep. The whole reason why I know how to whistle, albeit not very well these days, is because he taught me.
3: I've known most of these dogs since they were born or since they were very young. And we've been through so much together. You know, every dog has different strengths that they bring to the team. So I know you know, who's gonna lead us through a storm. I know who's gonna help us get up a mountain, who's really gonna, you know, even if like some of the dogs don't wanna eat all their food because they're not super food oriented and they have to eat so much when they're running that much. I know who's gonna finish leftovers for everybody. It's really about knowing your dogs as well as you possibly can. And every time I go out with them, I get to know them better and they get to know me better. As for that race, you know, I've raced all over Canada, all over the upper Midwest, uh, many races in Alaska. There's races all over, even though most people have only heard of the Iditarod because it is the most famous outside of mushing circles. But the thing about a thousand mile race is that you can't describe the terrain and you can't plan for one terrain. You start out in one environment, and then you have to cross the Alaska Range. You have to go up and over mountains and down them again. And then you're passing through an area of the interior that is so remote. There are areas bigger than many states without a single human resident. That's how remote it is. So you're passing through those spaces where, like, wolves have moved into ghost towns, and you don't see anyone for days. And then... There's like 200 miles of going up the frozen Yukon River, which is a completely different environment. And when I was there, it was an incredibly warm year.
0: The year that Blair completed the Iditarod in 2019 set the record for the highest percentage of women entrants, 33%.
3: Blair's also proud that she's the second Jewish woman to take part. You'd think that warmth would make it easier, but it actually makes it much, much harder. A cold year is always going to be easier than a warm year for sled dogs. And there were large holes of water in the ice that we were dodging for 200 miles, like bathtub or hot tub sized holes of open water that we just kept trying not to fall into. You know, and then you reach the coast of the Bering Sea and you have to cross part of the frozen Bering Sea and the storms out there are just absolutely unreal. And then you have a couple more mountains. So it's just one environment after another. And what I learned from it is you can't overthink what's coming up you just have to focus on where you are because i i would be like crossing the mountains and trying to plan for what it was going to be like when we crossed the ocean and i didn't know the conditions could change so much by then and it really was an exercise for me in focusing on the present one of the things that's so beautiful about mushing in general is that there's such a diversity of bodies That can be very competitive. You know, if you think about gymnasts or marathon runners or weightlifters, you can sort of picture the type of body that's probably on the podium at, you know, world class levels. But that's not the case with mushing. You have people who are 18 years old and people who are 65 years old and they're neck and neck. You have people who are big, people who are small. You have men, you have women. You have people who aren't men or women. And nobody cares because there aren't gender divisions. Nobody's worried about who's competing where. It's just all in one division. I think that's really beautiful. I love that this is a sport where I'm not going to be past my prime. I love that. I love
0: what you're saying about how you'll never be past your prime and that you will continue to learn... When it comes to treatment of the dogs in this sport, there is some controversy out there. But Blair's empathy and attentiveness to the needs of her team of dogs is incredibly persuasive. And her insights into their personalities are funny, warm, and perceptive.
3: My relationships with them all are so different because they all bring such unique perspectives, unique skills. One of the dogs who I talk about the most, who's on the cover of my book, Dogs on the Trail, if you've seen that book, You'll recognize the girl on the cover is Peppy, who is my main lead dog. She's now getting up there in age. She might be nine, and she refuses to retire. She'll never retire. We have a dog named Grinch, who is, uh, we always say he's made of off-brand Legos. I don't really know what his origin story is. He came to us at age three or four but he uh, he has an overbite and he just he just gives the best hugs and all he wants to do is love everybody all day long and then we have someone like Jenga she came to me as a yearling and and became really my first lead dog she's this sort of uh, mousy brown hound type dog and she's a thinker she's an overthinker which i i relate to she will get bored if she's leading the team on a straightaway on a lake or something like that and it's boring she will start playing pranks on the other dogs to entertain herself and i could tell you stories about every single one of them i could keep going forever but i know that i probably shouldn't i probably should rein myself in
0: oh i don't know i could listen to you talk about the dogs for a very long time and the whole way in which i discovered you and your writing and your work is from your very dedicated tweets to the lives and personalities of the dogs. And for anyone listening who does not follow (laughs) Blair, I highly recommend doing so. You will become very emotionally invested in these dogs very quickly. Do they arrive ready to race or do you have to put them through a certain
3: amount of training? Oh, that's a great question. So dogs come to us in different ways. Sometimes some of our dogs are born here. We've had dogs come to us at different ages. And so it really varies. Obviously, if you're working with a eight week old puppy, they have a lot more to learn before they're ready to run 100 miles than a highly trained three year old. Of course, you know, a sled dog cannot set out on a long journey if they're not properly conditioned. So conditioning is a lot of what we do in the same way that, you know, someone who's training to run a marathon is going on runs on a specific schedule in order to be athletically prepared for that. In the same way that you don't have to teach a retriever to chase a tennis ball like you throw and they're just like, "Ah, I have to get that and bring it back to you. That's the exact same energy that sled dogs bring to running. We don't have to teach them anything at all. But we do have to teach them, and they do have to learn quite a number of things that aren't running. And resting is very, very hard to teach them. That's the biggest challenge, because they want to go, 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 go. And the concept of stopping on the trail and... Eating a meal, building a fire, taking a nap for a couple hours, they can't stand it. They can't stand it. Because normally, you know, for a long race, we might be on a run-rest schedule of four hours running, four hours resting, four hours running, four hours resting, something like that. A 50-50 run-rest schedule. So there's quite a bit of time when they're just napping by the side of the trail while I'm preparing meals for them or massaging them or repairing the sled or things like that. (laughs)
0: Talk a little bit more about the challenges of the blizzards and storms and how the dogs deal with that, and also how you deal with that as well, because I'm assuming you have to stop.
3: It really depends. And the, the storms, of course, aren't just in Alaska. I've encountered very serious storms in Norway, I've encountered various serious storms in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And Michigan, which are places where we we mush a lot. There's actually a huge mushing culture in the upper Midwest, and we love it a lot. And our train around here and and encounter very serious storms, say, off Lake Superior. The main thing you have to be prepared for when you go out with the dogs is that you might end up stuck out there. So I always have, you know, even if I'm going out on a 20 mile run, I will carry supplies we need to spend the night out there and maybe a couple nights if we need to. And partly this is good because it weighs down the sled and it gives me a little more control because the dogs are so strong that, you know, having a little extra weight in the sled helps me have a little bit of braking power. But we also just have to be prepared. Like I know and my husband knows that if either of us go out with the dogs and like don't come back, (laughs) that it'll take quite a while for the other person to worry because we just figure that whoever's out there with the team, like, I don't know, maybe had to camp for a while Maybe is waiting out some weather. I mean, the weather we'd be able to see at home, but it's just sort of not that big of a deal to have to wait out a storm. It's just how things go. The dogs will curl right up with you, and it can be kind of cozy waiting things out. It really can be. <laughs>
0: Your new novel, Small Game, just came out and is set in the wilderness, unsurprisingly, and is based around a sort of survivor-like reality show. The
3: book is about a, a survival reality show where the crew disappears and it turns into a real survival situation. This might be a really stupid
0: question, but do you think any of the personality traits of the dogs have found their way into the characters of your book?
3: I love that question so much. (laughs) I love that so much because I get asked like, you know, which one is based on you? And none of them are really based on me. But in some ways, like there's things I relate to in all of them. But the dogs. Yeah, absolutely. I could totally match the dogs to the different characters. And also at the time I was writing it, we had tiny puppies sitting next to me. I was in a in a little cabin and my girl Leap had just had puppies and they were so fat and squeaky, and they were just sort of lying next to me while I wrote, and that totally worked. Like, I had to find a way to bring the puppies into the story, even though they don't totally fit, because they just were such a part of my life as I was writing. So they make a little appearance, too. I think
0: writing with a litter of puppies next to me is probably my, like, dream scenario. That just sounds like absolute heaven. (laughs) 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 After the break... Some phenomenal tips from Blair for dressing for the extreme cold so that you never have to shiver again. And she recounts the time she and her dogs fell into a deep pit that seemed impossible to climb out of.
3: Many put their hope in Dr. Serhat. His company was worth half a billion dollars. His research promised groundbreaking treatments for HIV and cancer. Scientists, doctors, renowned experts were saying, genius, genius, genius.
4: People that knew him were convinced that he saved their life.
3: But the brilliant doctor was hiding a secret.
4: Do not
1: cross this line that was being messaged to us. Do not cross this line.
3: A secret the doctor was desperate to keep. This was a person who
2: was willing to cold-heartedly just lie to people's faces.
3: We're dealing with an international fugitive. From Wondery, the makers of Over My Dead Body and The Shrink Next Door, comes a new season of Dr. Death Bad Magic. You can listen to Dr. Death Bad Magic ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts
1: be great to earn rewards on everything you crave from gourmet to homemade. Now you can with the US Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn 4 times points on dining, takeout and restaurant delivery and 2 times points at grocery stores, grocery delivery, gas stations, EV charging stations and streaming services. Learn how you can earn 20,000 bonus points, a $200 value, at usbank.com/altitudego when you apply. Live every day your way with the Altitude Go Card. Learn more at usbank.com/altitudego. Limited-time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is US Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA
4: Inc. Some restrictions may apply. At eBay, you'll always get that feel of real because your fashion purchase will be backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Whether it's a knit bag, a must-have watch, dreamy jewellery, or fire sneakers and fresh streetwear, every step will feel authentic, every flex will feel real. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms.
3: assume that I must simply not care about being cold and that really isn't true like if I'm in an air-conditioned room I'm the first person to put on a sweater I really believe that being outside in the cold and being comfortable outside in the cold is a skill that you can develop it's not something that people either have or don't have and a lot of it has to do with knowing what to wear and you need to wear you know everyone knows about layers of course but there's all sorts of other tricks like, eating smaller meals regularly and snacks regularly and never eating one big meal all at once. A big meal will make you colder, but snacks will make you warmer. You have to go to the bathroom often. You have to like pee every time you think you have to pee, because if you don't, you're going to get cold. And I'm not sure the physiology of all of these, but I can tell you that they work. You know, there's all sorts of tricks. You really want to insulate yourself from the ground. So I always buy... My boots a size up, and then I get like inch thick wool insoles and I put those inside the boots because you're losing heat to the ground a lot faster than you're losing it to the air. And you never, ever, ever want to sweat. If you start sweating, then you're just going to be cold until you can change your clothes because that moisture is going to suck all the warmth right out of you. So there's all these little tricks and habits that you develop that really make a big difference. And then You know, there's clothing items that I have that most people have never seen. I have friends visit me from New York, and I want to take them dog sledding, and they'll say, no, 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 I have really warm clothes. And they'll show up in their warmest clothes, and that's like what I wear as a base layer. So if you are thinking about getting into cold temperatures, traveling somewhere cold, You just have to put on more layers until you're not cold anymore. If you are still cold, you are not wearing enough layers. And you're going to get like big and puffy, like just embrace taking up a huge amount of space. And I think women in particular, we feel like we have to make ourselves smaller and like in so many ways with our bodies, right? Also, but with our clothing and you can't be afraid of being like super puffy and taking up a lot of space and just... You know, wearing everything that you need to keep yourself warm and comfortable and able to have those adventures. And then the other thing I really, really love that I will swear by is a down skirt. If you can get a down skirt of any length, like a mini skirt, knee length, ankle length is going to be the warmest. It will make a huge difference. It's so much warmer than insulated pants because your legs are able to share warmth with each other. It's like a mitten is always going to be warmer than a glove. I love to see people trying down skirts because they're able to spend so much more time outside comfortably than they were before that.
0: As Blair said, her novel, Small Game, which came out late last year, fictionalizes so much of her own wilderness experience. And her terrific 2016 memoir... Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube, chronicled how she became a musher in Norway and then finally moved to northern Wisconsin. Her descriptions of the challenges of living in extreme environments are as much about psychology as they are physical.
3: Shall I go ahead and read?
0: Yeah, dive in and just, I mean, I feel like you're experienced doing readings at this point, but just, you know, don't rush it. Pace yourself.
3: Okay. Sounds good. So this is a section from the epilogue of Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube. And I think all you need to know is that it's when I'm first trying racing, I'm out with a six-dog team. It's all very new to me, and we we fall into a pit. A logic puzzle. You have six dogs, 10 feet of rope— a knife, a ski pole, a snow hook, a handful of zip ties, and a bag of bear fat. Now, how do you get out of the pit? The powder was so deep that riding the sled was nearly impossible. As soon as I wrestled it upright, it rolled over again and slid forward, leaving me swimming on my stomach through the drift. I tried to set the snow hook, but it wouldn't hold. I had worn two parkas for warmth, which made it hard to move and in wrestling the sled, I had already sweat through my long underwear. I willed myself to radiate confidence. The last thing I needed was for the dogs to see me anxious. The thing to do, I figured, was get the sled somehow steady, then move my way along the team, untangling the dogs and checking for injuries. Then finally, I would work on the challenge of getting us all out. Maybe I could lift the dogs one by one, figure out somewhere to tie them so they wouldn't run off while I reassembled the team. Ready, I said. This was the usual command for the dogs to pull their lines straight, to prepare to run. It was a long shot. Given how tangled they must be, they probably couldn't do much. But the dogs' ears perked up, and miraculously they bounded into position. Three perfect pairs, poised to run, stuck at the bottom of a pit. The lip of the trail was about six feet above us, the wall steep and soft, but the dogs were ready to go. I stared at them, then wrapped my hands very tightly around the handlebar. Ready? I said quietly. All right. I'm telling you, it defies physics. But as soon as I said, all right, the dogs ran straight up the wall, their little feet catching hold faster than the snow could collapse around them. And as they reached the packed trail, they dug into the ground and leaned into their harnesses and pulled me out too. And by the time I'd scrambled onto the runners and caught my breath, we were running again, not a tangle among us. And they were so happy. Every muscle in their bodies bounding with excitement, smiles wide, not wolves at all. They were sled dogs and it was a perfect 10 below. And there was nothing in the whole world as fun as running and racing and tumbling into pits and getting out of them again. We're okay, aren't we? I said to the dogs as we careened down a frozen logging road, the sled rattling over bumps in the ice sending shutters up my bones. We're doing just fine.
0: Coming up, a listener story from Catherine DeFrancis, who drives between the east and west coasts of the US, tending to two different communities of animals who were trained to race and are now in contented retirement. If you're enjoying this episode of Women Who Travel, one of the best ways you can support the podcast is by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you.
3: Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moschweg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling.
1: On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene, but every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind.
3: You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
2: My name is Catherine DeFrances. I live on the East Coast in Washington, D.C., and I divide my time between the West Coast and the East Coast with two animal projects, the Retired Racehorse Sanctuary in California, and on the East Coast, I have the Retired Greyhounds. So I travel in my car. Typically, I will drive from coast to coast which is quite an experience with the animals, finding somewhere to stay. It's a challenge, but I think it's perfected at this point. I do not physically drive the horses. We have a shipping company, a transport company that does that for us. I physically drive the dogs. They travel very, very well. Of course, the greyhounds who were trained at the racetrack have an inherent sense of mobility. So they're wonderful traveling. We stopped, I don't know, a couple of times a day. They have to obviously be on the leash, as anybody who knows that has traveled out to California, especially the southern route, when you go through all the deserts and the arid land, Uh, you have to watch out for snakes and other such things. So we typically choose camping sites, glamping sites, or motels. Greyhound Welfare is an organization that gets notified when the greyhounds retire from racing. So some of the greyhounds that I take out to the West Coast are in fact going to Forever homes. I've spent over 25 years in the horse racing industry on the media side come the horses for today's race. We'll
1: pick four starts here with exacta, trifecta, and superfecta betting. Adjo-
2: it's a matter of giving back. Prior to purchasing the Raj, the greyhounds were suitable because of their size, but my dream is to be involved in aftercare because these horses give their lives to the horse players, the owners, the trainers, and everything. And, you know, unless they are top of the range, you know, stakes, grade one winners, they don't all go on to a happy retirement. Unfortunately, there are just not enough of these sanctuaries and retirement homes. And I also wanted to get involved in my ultimate goal, with the sanctuary is to turn it into a therapeutic destination.
3: Dogs retire. It can mean a lot of different things. Blair Braverman. Typically, when I say it, I mean the dogs are not really on the race team anymore. But that doesn't mean they're not part of the team. So we have retirees who we are double digits and just absolutely like own the farm and keep all the youngins in line and still love to run. But they go short distances. And then I have I have a friend in Minnesota who has multiple 18-year-old sled dogs who still run every day. So there isn't really an age where they have to stop, but they can, as they get older, they can sort of, you know, want a chiller life as mushers, as they're people. (laughs) It's our job to just pay attention to that and make sure that every dog is sort of living the life that is right for them at that time. So sometimes we have dogs who become pets. We have people who want, you know, an active pet and they'll talk to us and a retired sled dog can be an incredible pet, especially if you're interested in canicross, which is running with a dog pulling you, or bikejoring, which is biking with a dog pulling you, or ski which is skiing with a dog pulling you. There's all sorts of mushing sports you can do with one dog or two dogs. And a dog who's retired from a bigger team could be a really fantastic option for that because they want a little bit of a chiller life. They want to go their own pace, but they still have all that knowledge, have all that experience. They probably know, you know, their rights and lefts and all sorts of commands for running down the trail ahead of you. You know, it's just sort of figuring out what is the right lifestyle for them at every moment. And it can be bittersweet. You know, I remember when our girl refried, retired, From the race team, she was a singer and she would always sing when the going got tough. And I knew that I wasn't going to be hearing her in races anymore. That was bittersweet, but that she was still going to be part of the team in every other way.
0: Refried. I love those names. Next week, we look at quite a different reason for travel and immerse ourselves in the allure of famous cemeteries, historical tombs, burial sites, and the rituals that come with honouring our ancestors. Thank you for listening. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and you can find me, as always, on Instagram at Lale Hannah, and follow along with Women Who Travel on Instagram at Women Who Travel. You can also join the conversation in our Facebook group. Alison Layton brown is our composer. Jennifer Nelson is our engineer. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer.
2: And if you are watching this video,
4: When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love and want are checked by experts, not just any experts, they're real people who really love these things and they have real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, you can shop with confidence, knowing every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified real and authentic. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, slip on that watch, light up in gold, swing that handbag or step out in that streetwear, you'll get that authentic glow. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.